So I had the pleasure of reading this particular article. Let me just make sure that um, I put everything on mute to make sure that there's no unwelcome sounds in the background. But nonetheless, um, uh, Mark Haywood um, has written quite a nice, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, a nice summary of a webinar that was held um, via the Daily Maverick Science. uh, And then the piece is entitled Science Citizens and Democracy, the Need to Hear All Voices. And he makes a very strong argument uh, for the fact that at this point in time, in our discussions around COVID-19, we need to open up room uh, for people to be able to debate and have conversations about this. But obviously, this does come, uh, come with a fair warning, um, especially based on the fact that things can easily be politicized. Let me quickly say hi to him. Uh, Mark, good evening and thank you for joining us, man. Good evening, Gatchwell. How are you? Nice to speak to you. Great stuff, mate. It's been too long. It's 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 been years by hey, my count since since we've chatted. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's 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 actually quite sad how quickly time flies and and how little time we have generally, um, you know, to 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 connect. And congratulations, by the way, on being the Maverick Citizen um, uh, editor. I I didn't even know that was the new thing that you were up to now. Well, thanks. Uh, no, it's it's been very interesting. I mean, we've been doing it for six months now. And Maverick Citizen is focusing exclusively on civil society and human rights and social justice and, you know, the stories of the work and campaigns of ordinary citizens that until we came along weren't considered as as news. So I'm enjoying uh, telling those stories, but also just seeing what is going on in the world underneath the kind of formal world of politics and, and, and business and clearly... COVID-19 coming along and challenging us like this is putting civil society organization really to the test. Uh, Very much, very much. Um, Interesting. I mean, uh, you know, all of us are are severely stretched at the stage. And uh, Mark, I'll get into the nuts and the bolts of... of, of Uh, your argument in in a couple of seconds. I just want to also then introduce to the conversation Professor Shabir Mahdi, who's the professor of uh, vaccinology. Um, And then this for me at Wits University, and I think this is such an important conversation because it gives us the opportunity also then to look at what are the numbers, what do those numbers actually mean. And then, Mark, I'll, I'll ask you then to almost translate that into the human experience. I think that's a that's a fair take on this, I hope, um, sure. uh, you know, that I don't miss in the process. But let's go to Pro, uh, Prof. Shabir Mahdi. Uh, Prof, good evening and thank you for joining us. Hi, good evening. Hi, good evening. Prof, can you hear me? Hi, Professor. Okay, it seems like we're having a challenge with the professor's line there. Mark, let's start off by talking about something. Obviously, it's it's very simple and easy, I think, uh, to have a very uh, clinical conversation about illness and disease. It's very easy to, to just talk in terms of numbers. Um, and at the moment, the statistics don't look very good. Um, we know that we're way beyond what government was planning on having in terms of its stats, uh, government was saying that we should see an increase of approximately uh, 45 to 90 cases a day. We weigh above that, sitting with uh, uh, 9,420 confirmed cases. 
Um, that's an uh, that's that's an increase by 525, uh, and an additional eight deaths, bringing the total death tally to 186 uh, deaths in total. Uh, recoveries 3,983, which I guess is also welcome news uh, on the in the alternative. But at the very same time, with just looking at those numbers. Uh, it's easy to forget the, the human beings that are impacted by A, the lockdown, and B, the fact that this uh, disease is spreading like wildfire at the moment. Mark? Have I lost Mark as well? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing you in the background, but something else is playing at the same time. So. Okay, no, no, it's fine. But did you, did you hear my question, though? I can hear you. Yeah, it's, it's gone now. I picked up a little bit. You were talking about the latest statistics, mm. uh, which are now over 10,000 uh, uh, COVID-19 infections. I saw a few minutes ago uh, the latest statistics mm. and saying that there's a human being behind everyone. And yes, yes, there is. And, uh, um, you know, when you look at what is happening in countries like the United States and Italy and the UK and you see who's being affected and it's healthcare workers and it's people from many different countries mm. and that is going to be the case unfortunately here uh, already uh, because you know it's we're at the bottom of a, of a, a steep curve rising curve of COVID-19 and unfortunately, given the weaknesses of our healthcare system, mm. it's inevitable that, that significant numbers of people are going to die. And we have to remember uh, the humanity uh, of all of those people, as you're saying. I, and, and apart from that, also, the other thing that I want to touch on with you, but I'll, I'll come back to you on that one, Mark, is also the broader impact that this has on people beyond um, just simply the disease or the risk of catching the illness yeah. and obviously being impacted by that, but what COVID-19 has done to the South African economy, the lifestyle of people, etc., yeah. etc. But That's we'll touch on that in, in, in just a few. Sure. Uh, yeah. Professor Shabir Mahdi, we have you back. Good evening, Doc, and thank you for joining us. Hi, good evening. Thank you for having me. Great stuff. So, Professor, I mean, especially being a professor of vaccinology and looking at what we what the situation currently is with COVID-19 and its current spread. I mean, I was looking, I did a quick Google and I saw that the numbers were 9,420. And then when I look at EWN, it's already shot up to 10,015 cases um, with eight more deaths again, which uh, brings the total tally then. Um, to if I do maths quickly, uh, uh, to what uh, 194 people, um, you know, that would have uh, died as a result of COVID-19. I mean, at the moment we we seem to be really um, the numbers are increasing at a phenomenal rate, 500 plus in the last two days. Yeah, so I think that's two parts to it. Is that these numbers might be seeming frightening at the moment, but the reality is that it's two months from now, we're probably going to be looking at roughly between five to six thousand cases per day. Wow. Uh, and unfortunately, there's no getting away from it. And I think that's something that we need to appreciate. Uh, that being said, also what we need to remember is that the numbers that you cite in the 10,000 is a very biased sampling in terms of who we have identified. The true numbers right now in South Africa is probably at least 10 times greater than those numbers for a number of reasons. The first reason is that what we now know is that between 50 to 80% of people that are infected with the virus are completely asymptomatic. So they wouldn't even be targeted uh, to be investigated. Then, in addition to that, where we are right now in terms of testing, is there is nowhere close to the rate that we should be testing 
be fully able to identify those individuals that are symptomatic and infectious. So we're still at the very early stage of this epidemic. But at the same time, when thinking through these numbers, I think it's important to put it into context. Uh, so as an example, if we were to take 1,000 adults over the age of 18, over the next two years, mm. we expect roughly about 60% of them to be infected. But like I said, roughly about 70% of those that are infected to be asymptomatic. Now, that 1,000 adults, roughly about 25 to 26, will require hospitalization. And probably between four to five will die. And those that will die, more than 80% of those, unfortunately, are going to be people over the age of 65, are going to be people with comorbidities, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, as an example. Mm. So we just need to put it into context as well, because at the same time, while COVID has been really devastating throughout the world, but we also can't forget the type of indirect impact that it could have, not just on the economy, but also on other health industries. What's happening right now in South Africa over the past five weeks of the lockdown is that 50% fewer people suspected cases of TB have been investigated. What that tells us is that people are not coming forward to be investigated for TB, which means that they are going to be delayed in terms of their diagnosis, which means their outcome is going to be poorer. This year alone in South Africa, mm. about 40,000 people are going to die from tuberculosis. So we need to just be measured in terms of our response. We can't allow our response to the COVID-19 pandemic to result in greater mortality from non-COVID disease than from what COVID disease itself will cause. So we really need to be careful in terms of how we react, how we respond. We need to be measured and we need to think beyond COVID. And mm. it's not a three to six month issue. COVID-19, we're going to continue having waves for at least the next two to three years. Mm. So that is the first of at least two to three ways before we get what we call sufficient people, percentage of people that are infected, and that is when what we call herd immunity arises, which makes the virus less sufficient to transfer from one person to another, including to people that are susceptible to developing severe disease. So, so on that basis, I mean, you've given us quite a bit of, you know, um, uh, statistics and information there in, in, in that one breath, quite frankly, that, uh, Prof. Um, the key thing for me is we at a stage now where we're looking at a number of, of 10,000 and I, I will get back to some of the factors that you had highlighted around some of the other illnesses that we, for example, have a serious concern with, uh, in South Africa, including tuberculosis. But, what my worry is and what my big concern is based on what you had just said there is that as a nation, we are moving towards, um, you know, fewer restrictions at least. At least that's the trend that it seems we are following at this particular stage where we've gone from level five to level four lockdown. Uh, the next step hopefully is level three and level two and so on and so forth, which means pretty soon children should be going back to school um, more people should be returning to work, more businesses should be able to open up or sectors of businesses should be able to open up, etc., etc. My question is, based on this increase that we're seeing at this point, is it the smart move for us to be seemingly going in the opposite direction in terms of the current lockdown or the current state of the lockdown? Yeah, so we've got no choice but to go to our lesser stage of the lockdown for a number of reasons. Firstly, the reason for the lockdown is not to eliminate the virus. Under mm. no condition will a lockdown on its own eliminate the virus. And in fact, with the amount of community transmission 
that has already started to transpire in South Africa, it makes it impossible, even if you were to revert to a lockdown, to sort of completely eliminate the virus. Okay. It's simply not going to happen. So what we need to aim for is lowering the rate of transmission. So we would rather yeah. have 60% of the population be infected over two years rather than over six months because that enables our healthcare facilities to be better equipped in terms of dealing with a surge of cases which is imminent. It's about putting the rate of transmission rather than aspiring to an unachievable goal of elimination or complete prevention of infection. Now, when we sort of phase out from the lockdown and go to the sort of the lower level, the only thing, whether we're at level four or level two or level three, the reality is that the only thing that is going to allow us, enable us to reduce the rate of transmission of the virus, is the behavior of South Africa. It's not government policy. But at the level two or level two or level three, there's going to be a minimal change in terms of rate of transmission unless the citizens of the country sort of buy into the concept of the non-pharmaceutical interventions that are proposed aimed at reducing transmission. It's not preventing infection. It's about reducing transmission, lowering the immediate risk of infection. But people, unfortunately, are going to still get infected. And it's something that we need to accept, unfortunately. This is a respiratory virus. Unlike HIV, which is much more sort of uh, preventable, in a sense. Mm. But the respiratory virus is ubiquitous in terms of its circulation. It's nearly impossible to protect people completely from being infected. But again, I need to emphasize right, that this virus is much more severe than the seasonal influenza. Let me ask you. Let me ask you my final question then before um, I, I let you go, because obviously you you um, are pressed for time. I know I'm very much aware of that. I think the biggest thing for people, including myself as a parent, is pretty soon the kids need to go back to school, right? And and it's the writing is on the wall. We know that's going to happen. What the exact plan is at this stage, we're not too aware of, but we know that it is going to be a phased approach. Um, I can already see various memes doing the rounds of seven-year-olds and six-year-olds and five-year-olds having lost their mask and telling the teacher within the first five minutes of the school day that they've lost their mask. How do we go about returning children to school um, without, in essence, having uh, a disaster on our hands, for lack of a better term? Yeah, so look, this is a really lengthy discussion, but the short answer to it is that simply state that children, fortunately, this time round, in the first two, in the 25 years of my experience studying the surgery pathogens, for the first time around, children are actually not developing severe disease. Yeah. There's a handful of children that have died from COVID-19, almost all of whom have had comorbidities of a medical condition. Right? And that is the reality. There's only a, a, the number of children that have been hospitalized for COVID-19 is sort of in the thousands, rather than even 10,000. So children are making up the minority of mm. cases of severe disease, is somehow protected against severe disease. So in terms of children and their safety and their health, even if they get infected, and they will get infected, but unfortunately they will get infected, they, the majority of them, the large majority, 99.9% of them, are not going to develop a severe illness. They're going to have mild self-limiting illness, essentially. But the other dimensions to it, in terms of what law they might lay with regards to being vectors of transmission, and the evidence right now indicate that children in fact are not important sources of transmission. Mm. 
So ultimately, uh, the phased approach that has been suggested uh, suggested by government, uh, we don't need to panic. That is probably the best way for us to be able to a salvage the 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 the, the academic year and be able to return young people to school. Yeah, definitely. And I think government can actually be much more sort of aggressive in terms of how to phase in uh, the opening of different grades in schools. Great stuff. Uh, right now, they're extremely cautious, but I think there is room for us to be more aggressive in terms of ensuring that this entire academic year is not lost. And it's especially important for very young children because this, they are in the formative years of education. You do not get back when you're two, three years old. You do not get back the capacity to learn yeah. years to that stage. Prof, um, a lot of people are saying that we're going to peak around about September, August. I mean, is, is that what we are actually looking at? What does that ultimately mean? Does that mean that we're going to reach the, high, uh, the, the maximum number of day-to-day transmissions and then from there it should start tapering down and then we find? Do the models still suggest that? Is that what we sort of should be preparing ourselves for? Yeah, so uh, essentially it largely depends on how people abide to the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the physical distancing, the face mask, the NIG, and et cetera. It's all dependent on that. If we're good with that, we're probably looking at a peak on about the end of August. If we allow the virus to circulate more rapidly because we don't adhere to those sort of measures, then you might be able to get the peak even sooner. So it really depends on the citizen in terms of how this epidemic will fall out over the next few months and weeks. Prof, I'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Um, I Bye. really appreciate your time. Hopefully we can have you on maybe sometime in the week uh, on the other show that I will be covering. That's Aubrey Masango's show. Thank you so much. All the best to you. Bye. Cheers. That was uh, Professor Shabir Mahdi. Now, Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for, for having the prof sort of dominate the convers- that portion of the conversation, but he was uh, pressed for time because he has another commitment. Um, coming back to you, I mean, the prof and I were discussing, obviously, the impact of it. The first thing that he made a point of is, is something that you're extremely familiar with, and that is obviously the fact that, uh, you know, here in South Africa, we have a serious concern and a serious issue with the number of people who are not just only HIV positive, but also um, how quickly and how far mm-hmm. uh, tuberculosis has spread as an illness. And that in itself is one of the biggest threats when looking at COVID-19. Apart from the fact that, sadly enough, as he had stated, very few people are actually coming forward to test for tuberculosis at this stage. Yeah, and that's, you know, this is what is we're going to understand about this virus now in the, in the months ahead which is that we know that the people who get the worst disease are either people who are elderly, quite old, uh, or are people who have uh, pre-existing diseases, and you mentioned them, tuberculosis, HIV, hypertension, diabetes. Now, we often talk in South Africa about being a country with a quadruple quadruple burden of disease, Mm. Um, uh, one of those being HIV. And, you know, in the case of HIV, there are 7 million people in our country who live with HIV. Uh, 5 million of those people, very fortunately now, are on antiretroviral drugs, which means that the HIV virus is effectively under control and suppressed. Mm. And it seems from what we know so far that a person who's on ARVs uh, is as protected as, as Mm -hmm. as, as any other person. But there are... Two million people uh, in our country who aren't on ARVs and have HIV, and some of them have seriously compromised or weakened immune systems. So mm-hmm. we don't know exactly 
you know, a lot of this is a hypothesis up to now, but we're at the gates, if you like, because as you were discussing with Professor Mahdi, we've reached the point where there's an exponential growth growth in infections. We're soon going to see much larger numbers of deaths. This, This virus that has been staring at us for the last couple of months and slowly uh, organizing its movement across the country is now is, is now inside the city walls, as, uh, as it were. So we've got to be very, very prepared, and we have to take, as, as again, as Shabir was saying, the public health messages very, very, very seriously. However frustrated, however COVID-fatigued people may be feeling, mm. now is not the time to be letting down your guard. I, I hear you, and and obviously, you know, there's this, and and this is one of the things I've been struggling with, Mark, is the implementation of or of of maintaining that particular guard. If you get my drift, I mean, yeah. uh, I was saying, and I said this last week, I've said it a couple of weeks in a row now. In in middle class suburbia, it's comfortable for me, or relatively comfortable. My biggest inconvenience is the fact that I have three toddlers running around the house while I'm trying to work during the course of the day. Okay. So I'll have a Zoom meeting and I have a four-year-old popping in because he's hungry and he wants a peanut butter and jam sandwich. Or, you know, he, he wants to go wee and he doesn't want to go upstairs by himself. So those are my biggest inconveniences. Whereas we live in a country where we have deep inequality. And a lot of the deep inequality means that a, a large proportion of people in South Africa actually live in shacks. They live in, 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 in high-density environments where they don't have privacy, where they don't have the comforts that we take for granted in northern suburbia, middle-class Joburg. How then, what impact does this lockdown have then on those particular lives? And how do we balance that with the fact that uh, we're dealing with uh, a seriously virulent virus? Well, that's the, the, the trillion rand, literally the trillion rand question, isn't it? Um, you know, up to this point, we've, declared a national state of disaster. We have been trying to keep this virus under control and we've been prepared to suffer a terrible blow to our economy as a result. Mm. And I don't think you and me, Goshwal, understand the pain that millions of people are suffering. The fact that as we talk, there will be hundreds of thousands of people who are feeling hungry tonight. Mm. Uh, the fact that kids, you know, Professor Mahdi, when I was uh, hosting a webinar with him earlier this evening, told me about children being admitted, several children being admitted to Chris Barney Baraguanath Hospital with severe acute malnutrition. Mm. And that can only be now mm. because of denial of access to to food. So, you know, we have to be very, very careful all of the time that we take this virus with the utmost seriousness, Mm. but that we don't end up inadvertently killing people from a lot of other reasons, be it hunger, be it other diseases that are not being prioritized anymore, like HIV or like TB. And so we're feeling our way through this. Um, uh, And I think that is why you didn't have a chance to explore this with Professor Mahdi, but you know, Professor Mahdi and quite a number of colleagues are increasingly saying, saying, pull back from the lockdown and step up on the public health messaging and the public health interventions. Mm-hmm. We can get a bigger bang 
by spending a smaller amount of money on scaling up testing, on scaling up uh, access to masks, to to uh, you know to, to, to basic hygiene and hand washing, than on than on crashing our economy. I I think that you know the steps that we have have taken as a country up to now deserve praise. Yeah. Uh, the president deserves praise. But let's all of us remember that we're dealing with an unknown. And therefore, every day we learn something new. And we have to be prepared to adapt as, as we learn. And I think our biggest challenge now is how do we make sure that the health response and the economic response are properly integrated with each other? Uh, and they're not uh, at the moment. They are, they are two parallel responses um, we've got to bring them so that they they enhance each other. Now, Mark, I mean, I'm, I'm the last person to ever lecture you on the capability of our our Department of Health um, on on the state's ability to respond to a health crisis. I mean, this is the work yeah. that you are famous for, you know, for lack of a better term. Um, this is what your, your life has been defined by, quite frankly. I mean, at this particular point in time, how do we then, what does that model look like? where we are able to return to a semblance of economic activity um, that is, uh, you know, a little more equitable than what it presently is, because we know that despite our unequal society, despite the high levels of poverty, this year has literally ruined the economy uh, for the time being. And we obviously want to, as soon as possible, get back to where we were uh, not too long ago and obviously improve on that. How do we do that whilst ensuring that we do not end up with a serious health crisis that our Ministry of Health, that our Department of Health would never in a million years be able to deal with? Yeah. Look, the first, there's a number of parts to your question. The first thing you and the listeners have to understand is there's no going back to normal, uh, I'm afraid to say, for at least a year. Um this virus is going to be with us. It's going to continue to shape our society. So understand that, that behaviors that have been adjusted are going to have to stay being adjusted. And that's very sad. I don't think there's going to be big sporting events this year, again this year at all, um, for example. Mm. Um, whatever reckless people in... Britain presidents and so on, prime ministers might think, based on what we know about this virus, it's hard to say that. Um, uh, the second thing is that you know, we the, the critical messages that have what Professor Mardi calls the non-therapeutic approaches. That's all we've got at the moment because we don't have a vaccine and we don't have uh, treatment for COVID-19. So it's these non-therapeutic things. That's the, the scientific word for, for hand-washing and sanitizer and physical distancing and for the whole new series of behaviors that we're going to have to introduce into our schools and into our workplaces and into our families. And those are going to have to become our norms. And... You know, what people are starting to argue is that, or, or to, let's put, the, put it as a question, 
can we do that at the same time as returning to normal and in inverted commas economic life as far as possible? That's that's going to be the going to be the the challenge, I think. I hear you, and, and, and I think we and I think we can. And, and the last thing I'd say, sorry, just because you, you mentioned mm-hmm. it, is you know I, I think the health department and the minister of health has, have deserved the great praise that they've got. Their response to COVID nineteen has been a million miles away from what happened around HIV, but. We shouldn't romanticize it, even though we want to give them lots of kudos. Mm, mm. It's a broken health department and it's a broken health care system. And we're we're not up to this uh, in many respects. And so the the tragedy is that uh, we are going to see our health system coming under very, very uh, great strain because people are going to be infected with this virus and a portion of people who are infected are going to get get ill. So what I find interesting, I mean, uh, listening to what you're saying, and I think for me it, it makes sense, it, it absolutely uh, does highlight what the key concerns are and how we start moving towards getting back to some form of normalcy albeit yeah. something completely different to what you and I yeah. had encountered in the past. But, Mark, as you very very well know, and, and I'm going to be very careful of how I choose my words here, you have been accused of, um, of, of, of neoliberalism before and counter-revolutionary, <laughs> this and that and the other. But at the very same time, you know, we have political parties at this point in time saying that, listen here, Mr. President, um, we'd like to go back to, to some for, uh, you know, we'd, we'd like this uh, lockdown to come to an end. We'd like the phasing out of the lock, uh, lockdown to, to happen sooner rather than later. Those people in turn have been accused of, of being selfish, uh, of only having the interests of, of money um, ahead of them. Uh, what do you say to critics that will turn around and say, but hang on, Mark, you, you're sounding a lot, you, you're sounding very blue, white and red in this particular instance. I'm not making that accusation, of course. I'm just saying... That's a a horrific accusation. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because I'm the exact... I'm much more red than blue and white. um, No, but but seriously, the first thing is I would say that nobody, no political party, no business Mm. should be making political capital out of this, this crisis. What we have to be guided by is the science as it emerges by our understanding of a combination of medical evidence and, and public health. That has to be our lodestar at all times. So we should never do anything that recklessly jeopardizes life, either in the economy or in our schools, or whatever it, whatever it may be. Mm. But, but when I'm talking about the adjustments uh, or relaxing aspects of the lockdown. I'm not talking about it because I'm concerned that rich people should be able to continue to make their fabulous profits. I'm concerned about it because I'm concerned about the million poor people who have lost jobs. And I'm concerned about the kids that can't eat because poor parents don't have incomes. Mm. And we need a resumption of a certain part of the economy to meet those very, very pressing needs, particularly in a context where we see that the state is failing in its humanitarian 
response. Now, there probably isn't time to talk about it, but, you know, gosh, well, if you were to look at the food parcels that are being given mm. you in your, you know, in your middle-class comfort and me in my middle-class comfort, you know, a food parcel that's being given to a family of four wouldn't fill a few of your shopping bags. Mm-hmm. And we think that people can, can, can live on that. They yeah. can't. And, and it's wrong. And it doesn't make that. And it doesn't help that there's also accusations of Mark and Gersh belong to a particular political party, and then we choose our friends in the in the queue, and those are the ones that are prioritised. Those are the ones that get food, whereas people who exactly. supposedly aren't our buddies then you know suffer in the process. So so that doesn't help the situation either, does it? No, it doesn't. Exactly. And, and that's another of the of, of the complexities. I mean, I would say one thing whilst you. <laughs> You know, you're talking about neoliberalism and, and <laughs> these responses. But, you know, I, I have uh, argued in an article uh, I wrote about a week ago mm. that one of the shortcomings of our response in, at the moment in South Africa is that we haven't, or government hasn't done enough to take from private capital, private wealth. Mm the monies and the resources that we need to deal with this extraordinary situation. Government is trying to do everything within its own financial constraints. And yet we know that there's a trillion rand sitting in the bank accounts of the richest of the rich in this country that is not being used for anything at the moment. And I think that at a moment like this, it's time to talk, to rely not just on the generosity and the philanthropy of a few rich people, but mm. actually to say, listen, we need to introduce something like a, a short-term wealth tax because it may help us to raise another one or 200 billion rand, which is what we need to be able to deal with this, with this crisis. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary situation. It requires extraordinary measures as long as those measures are reasonable, fair, not arbitrary, and actually necessary to help us find our way through this crisis then they're justifiable mark i mean what is the model what does it look like us going back to some form of uh, you know getting closer and closer to normalcy what does that model actually look like let's start with uh kids in in school and i mean you made a such a valuable point and it's a point that i've been making the whole time is that and this, you you know this from from first hand experience yet again having worked so closely with schools many children are actually dependent they get their food they get their meals from you know the school yeah. lunch the, the the feeding schemes in their particular schools that's where they they get their food from um something that you know is out of the question now out of the window because guess what i'm stuck at home either in my small village or in my township with mom and dad all day they probably lost their incomes therefore i'm not even getting the food at school and at the same time they're not able to provide for me because chances are they've they've lost out their economic activity themselves so therefore this has a serious impact so what i'm getting at is that it might be better to try to get kids back to school as soon as possible, but how do you do that safely? Because Mikey, Joshi, and Joey might be quite fine, even if they are uh, COVID-19 positive. They might even be asymptomatic. But mom and dad, who, I don't know, have had pre-existing conditions, might not have healthy lifestyles, might not come off as well as a result of that. Yeah. Well, look, let me first say that... Um there's better experts than me, and it's a big question what exactly the model of reopening schools should be. So, so keep that in mind as I try to answer your your question. Um, 
But the first part is, again, start with the science. Uh, start with what Professor Mahdi said, which is, is that not only do children not get COVID-19 disease, i.e. they can get infected, but they don't get sick, but it seems mm. that children also do not infect, even if they're infected, they do not infect uh, uh, other adults. Now, that mm. seems very strange, and it seems very counterintuitive, mm-hmm. and the science is not 100% certain on it, but there is a, a, a scientific basis uh, for why we think that that is, is, is happening. And that's really important to, to understand. Our job, because every parent, and you're a parent of young children, I'm a parent of older children, every parent has fears for their children. So no, no uh, uh, parents are going to start sending kids back if they're worried mm-hmm. that they're going to put their kids in harm's way. Exactly. So we have to raise the understanding of people in this country about what this virus actually is, how it's actually transmitted, when it causes disease, etc., etc., so that people don't live with false fears, with unjustifiable fears. Then we have to look at every environment and say, within this environment, what actually is the risk that we're dealing with? So if you take a, take a school and you say, okay, well, the kids are not a risk to each other, mm. but could, who could they be a risk to in the school environment? Are there teachers with underlying conditions who have a greater uh, risk? of disease if a child in, in, infects them. Bearing in mind, as I've said, we don't think kids infect in large numbers. So you might take extra precautions to protect those, the, the, those teachers or, or other workers. Are there children who will go home from school into families where there is an adult or a gogo or a granny or someone uh, who, who is at higher risk? Um, how do you protect that, that person? Uh, unfortunately, and this is what I'm talking about, the new normal, this may sound very onerous mm. in our discussion, having to ask all these questions, having to prepare for all of these things. But is it more onerous than, than, than closing down and closing out millions of young people from a school environment and all the consequences that come of that? Come with that, yeah. So, so, and I'll finish on this point. You know, a friend of mine who's a doctor who works at Curtis, Curtis Gill Hospital said to me the other day, she said, you know, the thing is, she feels like the lockdown is, is a blunt instrument. It's a lazy way of, of trying to deal with this, with this crisis. Mm. And what I just described to you is the non-lazy way, which is that we're all going to have to make an effort in each of the spaces that we occupy, be it a family, be it a school, be it a, a workplace, to, to say what are the mitigation measures here in front of me now rather than thinking that it's going to be something that's going to be fixed by President Cyril Ramaphosa or by William Kize or whoever it may be. Mark, as, as a nation, do you think that we are mature enough to deal with this uh, from that particular perspective? I, I'm asking this question and I know that um, it's, and it's not my sentiments because we know and we understand that socially um, HIV is an extremely complex 
situation within South Africa. You can't just make bland assertions. And, and, and you know better than anyone else that for a very long time, people who stand on their soapboxes from a distance made bland assertions about HIV and the spread of HIV in particular. Um, you know, people need to be more responsible. People need to look after themselves. People are doing this to themselves, etc., etc. Why do we? Why do my tax money have to pay for ARVs when people can't protect themselves, etc., etc.? Um, and then there was the sense of we're just not responsible and we're not looking after ourselves. Are we, however, mature enough and able enough as a country? to maintain social distancing, to ensure that people are wearing masks, um, whatever shape or form those may take, to regularly sanitize. In fact, do we have the facilities? Do we have the types of communities where people are able to wash their hands regularly if they don't have access to alcohol-based hand sanitizer they spray on their hand? Well, that, that's a good question. But my starting point would be to say, um, first of all, those are all the right questions. I, I think our nation has displayed remarkable maturity in the last five or six weeks, far more than, than the nation of the United States or the British people. And I mean that, not just at the government level. I, I think that our people have done a great deal the way you see everybody wearing masks now, mm. uh, using sanitizers when they're able to access sanitizers. Of course, there's a large part of our nation that lives in, in unacceptable conditions that can't practice these public health measures that are recommended for everybody. But they don't not do that because they are irresponsible or selfish. They do that because they've been left in conditions that are squalid and, and unequal. So, so I personally don't have a doubt about maturity or the sensibility of the people of South Africa. I think that if people have the right information, if they are assisted to understand this virus and what it requires of us, and that it is a matter of personal interest and of public interest, that people will do the right thing. It then becomes a duty on the government and on people with power in this country, such as business, to make sure that people who are unlike you and me, who live in a house that maybe has five or six different rooms and where it is possible to keep a distance and to keep surfaces clean, you know, to, to make those changes in poor communities. In fact, I had an interesting insight in a discussion with a friend uh, earlier on this evening, and, and I said to, to her, you know, up to this point, we've had to destroy the economy mm. in the interest of public health for COVID-19. But what, and, and we've been prepared to do that. Business has been prepared to, to make massive losses, etc. What if we said, actually, to, to effectively confront COVID-19 we have to urgently accelerate the building of the economy of this country. Mm. And that means the infrastructures that have to be put in place, the schools that have to be fixed, the water systems that need to, to, be, to, to be provided to people so that they can wash hands. You know, if you had to make a choice between taking very, very urgent measures necessary to improve people's lives so that they can practice 
uh, COVID-19 prevention versus destroying an economy so that people can practice COVID-19 prevention. Which would you do, Gashua? No, I hear you. I hear you. And it's, it's, it's blatantly obvious. Final question from me, Mark, and, and, and then I'll, uh, you know, in, in two minutes if, if you can. What I just yeah. wanted to know from you is, I mean, based on what Professor Mahdi said, is that, you know, the, the lockdown wasn't going to eliminate the, the disease. That's, that, I guess yeah. that wasn't the aim in the purport. Was it all worth it? I mean, it, it caused a lot of pain and suffering. Where we're sitting right now, um, I'm looking at the number of job losses. I'm looking at the number of people that have reached out to me personally and said, listen, I need some assistance. I myself mm-hmm. am nervous, despite the fact that I'm, I'm still earning the same salary. I'm still employed. I'm still relatively comfortable. I'm still worried about what the future holds because at some stage things could change very, very quickly. Um, was all of this worth it? Yes, because it was necessary and it was the best thing to do based upon what we knew to do at that moment in time, what was recommended by the World Health Organization. Uh, it had significant benefits. It made everybody in this country realize how serious this is. It stimulated generosity and solidarity amongst a lot of people. And it has bought us a little bit of time. And people like Shabir Mahdi say that. We bought ourselves a little bit of time to prepare our healthcare services. It didn't flatten the curve. It did not change the trajectory of this epidemic ultimately in this country. But it was necessary. As all people are saying now is not that it was a waste of time and a waste of life and that we destroyed an economy for nothing, but that we have reached a point where we need a major readjustment because the cost is going to become far, far, far greater than the benefit if we, do, if we don't take those, those, those steps uh, at this moment in time. I hope that answers that question relatively clearly beautifully listen i will be dropping you an email pretty soon thank you so much mate it was an absolutely wonderful discussion i will make sure that we 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 keep up these conversations on a more regular basis um uh, thanks 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 for giving us your time this evening mate. thanks and very nice to speak to you as well and good luck cheers Cheers. man thanks man